One thing we see from this is that great works of God often take place in times of great fear. In fact, great works of God often produce great fear. How many times do we read about angels telling people, fear not? When we fear that dark forces are just too strong, remember that God is able to fuel our faith in His plan and His power. Well, I'd like you to take your Bible and open it today to 1 Samuel 21. 1 Samuel 21, our text this morning is going to be in the first nine verses, which we'll read in just a little bit. Uh, Last summer, our family was able to go up to the Pacific Northwest and saw some beautiful country and beautiful forests and lots of Bigfoot paraphernalia. Seems like everyone's selling a t-shirt or a sticker about Bigfoot being the undisputed hide-and-seek champion of the world. Do you know, that's, that's all kind of relative as to who the champion is. It kind of depends on what part of the world you're in, because if you go to Scotland, the legends are that it's Loch Ness who's the world champion lost in uh, hide-and-seek that no one can really seem to be, get a good look at. I grew up in the Chesapeake Bay area, and would you believe that there's a legend about Chessie? Some sort of monster that hasn't been seen very much at all, and no one has any pictures of it, but it exists in theory. Well, of course, what all these things have in common is that they, there's no real photos or evidence to substantiate any of it. It's mostly stuff seen in fog and mist and the like. We're coming into a section of stories about David where he is a man on the run. He is a man playing hide-and-seek. And he's not doing a very good job of it in one sense. Now, he does get away from Saul again and again and again and again. And actually, if you look at that, I think there's something like, uh, is it 17 different places that he flees to over the course of about six years? Uh, And he he zigzags all around trying to get away from Saul. And we're going to see today the fifth time that the stories tell us that David was on the run from Saul. He is a man on the run searching for sanctuary. And again, not very good at hide and seek. Yes, he survives, but there are so many close calls, and a lot of people figure out where he is, sometimes because he does some pretty stupid things, like we would. And we're going to see some of that today. We think of David as a man of faith, but he was also a man of failures. There was nothing wrong with him being on the run at this point. He needed to run away. We talk about walking by faith. You know, sometimes we need to run away by faith. (laughs) The problem, though, is in this case, David was running away by fear more than by faith. The failures of David at Nob, which is mentioned here in chapter 21, show us how God's faithfulness to His chosen ones runs deeper than even our lowest points of faith. I'd like us at this point to read this story. Actually, back up with me a verse into the end of chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 42. Jonathan said to David, Go in safety, inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord will be between me and you and between my descendants and your descendants forever. Then he arose and departed while Jonathan went into the city. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? David said to Ahimelech, the priest, 
Uh, the king has commissioned me with a matter and has said to me, let no one know anything about the matter of which I'm sending you and with which I've commissioned you, and I have directed the young men to a certain place. Now, therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. The priest answered David and said, There is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread. If only the young men have kept themselves from women. David answered the priest and said to him, Surely women have been kept from us, as previously when I set out. And the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was an ordinary journey. How much more than today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him consecrated bread. For there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord, in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. Now, one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. David said to Ahimelech, Now, is there not a spear or a sword on hand? For I brought neither sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's matter was urgent. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, behold, it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you would take it for yourself, take it, for there is none other except it here. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. The Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. This story of David at Nob is actually a two-part story. We just read the first part. It picks up again in chapter 22, verse 6. There were a series of three or four stories in between that, and these stories of David at Nob are a real mix of good and bad. In fact, part two, which we'll be at in a few weeks, is all bad, where the priests at Nob are massacred by Doeg. And yet, even what we just read is not all good. In fact, there's plenty of bad within it. We read the story and we're conflicted because David is the good guy, and yet he's clearly lying. He's lying to a holy man at that. There's good in that the priest wants to help David and, as it were, side with David. Later on, when David becomes king, he will restore the priesthood. It's one of his great accomplishments. But nonetheless, we read this and we are disappointed about what David does and says. And as we read this story, it raises all kinds of questions like, uh, what did Ahimelech know already when David came? Why did David lie to him? Was Ahimelech allowed to give David that consecrated bread from the tabernacle? What was Doeg really doing there? How did Goliath's sword get there? And did David, did David know about that all along? We'll try to answer some of these questions as we go through. I think David at least suspected that Goliath's sword was there, and that was probably the main reason he went to Nob to retrieve that weapon. But David's thinking is complex, and there were probably multiple reasons. So as we walk through the story today about God's great faithfulness running deeper than David's lowest points, we'll see these four points in the story. Uh, verse 1 begins with David's presence and the uneasy priest. And then it moves on to David's mission and the untrue story. 
David's peril with the unexpected agent. And lastly, we'll see David's desire for the unneeded sword. Come with me to verse 1 and we'll look at the first of these, David's presence and the uneasy priest. We're told, then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. Consider with me this nearby location of Nob. Nob is not mentioned very much in the Bible. It's so rarely mentioned that it's hard for archaeologists to be exactly certain where it is, but we know a few things. We, we know from the next chapter that 86 priests lived there and their families. So this is not a little hamlet. This is a, 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 a small town of some size. It's not an official Levitical site, uh, but obviously the priests are there. Probably the tabernacle has been placed there. You can see on this map where Nob is believed to be, it's just really two, three miles south of Gibeah, the capital of Saul. A um, couple hours for David to walk or maybe less time to run down there. It's maybe, maybe a mile or two north of Jerusalem. It's all very close by to other things. It, it seems like that after the, the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant from the Israelites in the beginning of the book, that they also went to Shiloh and destroyed it. That's what the prophet Jeremiah tells us several times. So the tabernacle is eventually reassembled and moved someplace. It seems as though it's moved here to the city of Nob. The ark might not have been there. The last time the ark was uh, located anywhere, it was at Kiriath Jearim, the same place where David will get it some 13 years later when he moves the tabernacle to Jerusalem. So we have a partial tabernacle, at least, functioning at Nob. David goes to the priest there, the high priest. Earlier, he had gone up the road to Samuel, the chief prophet. Now he comes down the road to the chief priest to try to get help. So that's the nearby location. And note the, the perceptive priest here in verse 1. Uh, he came to Ahimelech. And Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? Now, uh, the text doesn't tell us much about Ahimelech, but uh, we can piece together his connections from other points within the stories. Ahimelech, turns out, is the great-grandson of Eli, the priest who's mentioned at the beginning of the book. The brother of Ahimelech is Ahijah, that is Saul's chaplain. He is very closely connected to what's going on in the capital. Ahimelech is the high priest, but his brother is highly connected to power as well, a power that has become very corrupt. Ahimelech is no dummy. He knows that things are sideways in this kingdom. He must know something about Saul's pursuit of David. And, and you see his concern here. He comes trembling. He's shaking with fear. Very likely has heard about the rage that Saul has demonstrated toward David. Nob, again, is not far at all from uh, the capital and where some of the events of the previous chapters have taken place. I don't think Ahimelech is so much afraid about what David might do to him as he is what Saul might do to him. In fact, this is a bit of frightening foreshadowing. His fears were not unfounded. Ahimelech will give up his life in the next chapter along with 84 other priests. The only priest who will survive is one of his sons. Abiathar, who will go on to become the new high priest. 
This is a bit of grim foreshadowing here as he's afraid. In fact, this is a very fearful time within the realm. The book of Samuel is full of references to people being afraid. Commentator John Woodhouse observed that Ahimelech trembled at the approach of David just as his great-grandfather Eli had trembled on the day that the ark of God was lost. Just as the people of Israel trembled at the sight of the Philistines, just as the Philistines trembled before the Israelites when they heard about the ark, and just as the elders of Bethlehem trembled when Samuel came to anoint David to be the next king. There's a lot of fearful things going on in this book. David himself will be greatly afraid in this same chapter, in verse 12, in the next story, which we'll look at next week. One thing we see from this is that great works of God often take place in times of great fear. In fact, great works of God often produce great fear. How many times do we read about angels telling people, fear not? When we fear that dark forces are just too strong... Remember that God is able to fuel our faith in His plan and His power. Now, I'm bringing a positive perspective to fear here. In this moment, though, it's a very negative experience. Ahimelech, Ahimelech will see no resolution, only trouble. He asked David why he's alone. Where is his royal retinue? Why on earth would the king's son-in-law not have his accompanying servants? At least, a prince never travels about without his attendants or his subordinates unless something is terribly wrong. Ahimelech knew that something was amiss. So he asked David these questions, which brings us to verses 2 through 6, David's mission and the untrue story. We wish that David would have made an admission, but what he does is make up a story. He gives us these suspicious answers beginning in verse 2. David said to Ahimelech the priest, a king has commissioned me with a matter and has said to me, let no one know anything about the matter in which I'm sending you, in which I've commissioned you, and I've directed the young men to a certain place. I put a little bit of a sarcastic spin in my reading of that. I'm sure David tried to pass it off as something the king had said. Supposedly, Saul has sent him on a top-secret mission, so secret that David couldn't talk about it to even the high people in the kingdom. He can't even take anybody with him. He has some troops. They're going to rendezvous with him at a secret place. But this part of his mission is so secret, no one could come with him. It's all made up. This is all a lie. I mean, I suppose maybe, maybe he could have reasoned, uh, well, God is the king and God has sent me on a secret mission to get away from Saul. Maybe, but even so, the purpose of that spin, if that was what he was thinking, is to deceive. There don't seem to be any particular instructions that God is giving him. In fact, it seems like David is making up things as he goes along in these stories. He's not going to have anybody with him until the next chapter, verses 1 and 2. And that wasn't by prearrangement. What he does need to do at Nob really isn't clear. I mean, what is the secret mission? Why have you come here? The questions that David's going to ask in the next verse don't really sound like they're part of anything top secret. Give me some food. (laughs) Just like Jonathan in chapter 20 who lied for David, he wasn't very good at it. David's not so good at it here either. And it's not the last time David will lie in this chapter. When we come to the story next week, he goes to the gath and acts like a madman when he realizes he's not going to be welcomed. He feigns madness. These are not high points of David's faith. 
God is still at work, and there are psalms that grow out of these stories. There are something like seven or eight psalms that grow out of this period of David's life. God was at work none of, despite his failures, despite his low faith, despite even his disobedience. I suppose we need to ask, why would David lie in a case like this, uh, especially when someone like Ahimelech might have prophetic ability with Urim and Thunim to be able to determine right and wrong? Maybe he's not sure if Ahimelech is a safe person to talk to. His brother-in-law, his brother, after all, is the chaplain of the king. Maybe he thinks he's keeping Ahimelech safe by not telling him what he's really up to, offering some cover of deniability. If that's what he's thinking, didn't work very well. Not at all. Think about how different was the honesty of Jesus when he called people to come with him into dangerous places. He tells them right up front what the cost is going to be. Robert Vanoy said that Jesus rarely warned those who would follow him that they should count the cost. He didn't have a place to lay his head, he told them. Jesus, like David, was a wanderer. But when he called others to follow him, he told them who he was and what he was about in very clear terms. The kingdom of God, he says, is a kingdom of justice and integrity, not one of deception. I grant that there are times in warfare where some kind of deception may be ethically defensible. It's dubious whether this fits those categories. David's simply doing what many of us do when we're in trouble we can't figure out. We improvise to a fault. Commentator A.W. Pink said, through ingenious falsehoods, ingenious falsehoods may seem to present to, to promote security, yet they ensure future disgrace. David's deception as a protective measure will not work as the next chapter reveals. You know, many Christians are faced with questions about what to do about honesty. Um, to whom do I owe the truth, and when can I withhold information? And, and yes, those are fair ethical questions to sort through, but sometimes it just comes down to the fact that we don't want to get in trouble, so we stretch and extend and smother the truth into a lie. It's worse when it comes to the truth of God. Will we deny Christ or disown Him or disguise our Christian identity when the costs grow too high? You know, more and more within our culture, the issue of sexual ethics is growing and growing. Everyone is expected to get on board to support the, um, the beauty of varieties of sexual experience. And if you don't get on with that, there may be no room for you on the bus anymore. As believers, we cannot expect to find safety in deception when we are supposed to be known as people of truth. So, uh, David makes some suspicious answers here, and uh, then he gives some distracting questions in verse 3. Verse 3, now therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever you can find. David asks him two questions, just like Ahimelech had asked him two questions. And I don't really know that David's real purpose in coming to the, the sacred sanctuary at Nob was to get bread. I mean, the tabernacle was not known as a great soup kitchen. I don't doubt that he was hungry, but is that the real reason he's come here, to get bread? He asked for five loaves, which would be way more than he would need for himself. 
Um, earlier in the book, we're told that when David's brothers were fighting the Philistines, his dad sent him down to the battle line with 10 loaves of bread for his six brothers. So, you know, here's David asking for five loaves of bread. What's he going to do with all that extra bread? I think, I think this question is, is more about just the subterfuge. He's trying to change the conversation. You ever meet people like this? You come up and say, uh, can I help you with something? And they just start talk, 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 and start turning questions on you and never really answering what they're up to. Fast talkers often play fast and loose with the truth. We'll say a little bit more about this bread that he ends up getting. Uh, but we, we get some uh, complicated responses. They're, some of them are half-truth, half-true responses, but we, we get actually a, uh, oh, you know what? I lost some of those little subpoints. So uh, there's an exceptional offer that's made in verse 4, an exceptional offer. The priest answered David and said, there is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread. If only the young men have, keep themsel- have kept themselves from women. Now, in one sense, Ahimelech's response might seem to be a little bit hard to believe. You're telling me that a city with 86 families, the only bread is the holy bread that's used in the ceremonies. Uh, So some have thought that maybe Ahimelech was lying to David to try to get rid of him. Um, But I'm going to give Ahimelech the benefit of the doubt. He knows that Doeg is there. He's acting as something of a spy. And I think maybe Ahimelech doesn't want to leave the sanctuary. In terms of what's there at the sanctuary, verse 6 will tell us the only thing there was this consecrated bread. This is what's sometimes called the show bread. The show bread, bread that was baked every Sabbath day, 12 large loaves that every week were placed on a table in the holy place as a symbolic reminder of the communion that God had with his people Israel. Twelve loaves representing the twelve tribes. After one week, the old bread would be removed, new hot bread would be baked and placed there to replace it. The priests then would eat off of that bread. It was still considered consecrated bread. Ahimelech is willing to share this with hungry David, but the law really didn't make allowance for that kind of thing. So, Uh, There are times where the law, there are exceptions that are made. And uh, last Sunday night, I shared, preached from Mark chapter 2, where Jesus appeals to this passage about how, you know, the the law had some wiggle room within it, and you Pharisees won't let people wiggle from your own made-up laws. So you might want to go watch that video if you weren't able to be with us last Sunday night. Maybe, maybe the priests have already had their fill, and there's leftovers, And Ahimelech sees that there's a real need. But there's still some protocols to be followed. David and his men need to be ritually pure. And one thing that that would mean was that they had to have been sexually abstinent for at least a day or two. Uh, You know, Ahimelech is so much more conscientious than his ancestors were. Think about Eli's boys, Hophni and Phinehas. Phinehas used the tabernacle as a place to take advantage of women sexually. But Ahimelech is concerned about sexual purity even when it's just on a symbolic level. Now, the the point of Ahimelech's concern and his relevance to us today is not to think, number one, well, women are intrinsically dirty and they have spiritual cooties. That's not the issue. 
And it's also not the idea that if you want to be a holy man, you need to be a virgin. That's not the idea either. The assumption in this story is that all of these men, like David, are married men. The question about their intimacy is about what they've done with their wives recently. The Old Testament law occasionally required married couples to abstain from sexual activity before certain holy days and certain temple services. Now, marital intimacy is a good thing, a God-given thing. In fact, if there wasn't any amongst the priests, there wouldn't be any more priests because you couldn't just sign up, hey, I want to be a priest. You had to be the son of a priest. Um, But there was a symbolic value to sexual relations in the law that was connected sometimes, not always, sometimes with impurity. And and the law never explains the reasoning for it. It, Some have thought that the the loss of bodily fluids suggests the diminishment of life, just like losing blood suggests the loss uh, of bodily uh, vitality. Uh, Some have thought, well, you know, when, when two people come together and they create a baby, you also create a sinner, and that there's some symbolic lesson in that. Um, maybe it's that um, it's considered a distraction from the more serious and holy things which are to take place there. Maybe it's to distinguish what happens in Israelite worship from what happened at Canaanite worship where people would visit temple prostitutes. And this was a symbolic way of saying we are different from that. The Old Testament law never explains it, it just outlines it. And pious men, godly men like this priest, like David, are concerned with keeping those laws even if they don't make sense of them. We are not under any kind of obligation like that today. There's no prohibition of, uh, about intimacy before you come to church for us, other than that you be a husband and wife. This was part of the symbolic system of laws in the Old Testament. David gives now in verse 5 a half-true reply. A half-true reply. David answered the priest and said to him, Surely women have been kept from us as previously when I set out, and the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was an ordinary journey. How much more than today will their vessels be holy? Uh, One version paraphrases the beginning of this verse this way. I never allow my men to be with women. Under the Old Testament law, um, This meant not only that they were not womenizers, but it also meant that even as married men, they observed the ritual abstinence when they were on active duty. The law of Moses said that when soldiers go out to war, that they are to remain abstinent before the battle. Deuteronomy 23, verses 9 to 14. Joshua requires this of his soldiers before they go to Jericho. Joshua 3, verse 5. Remember Uriah the Hittite? The man whom uh, his, his wife had an affair with David and she becomes pregnant and David tries to cover it up and calls Uriah and says, go spend some time with your wife. And Uriah refuses to, partly because of the Mosaic law, the requirements of remaining abstinent during times of battle. Ironic, isn't it, that what David claims to do here, he tries to undo later. So David's first point is that what the priest has mentioned is no problem for them. This is what they normally do, and that's probably true. It's only half true because he doesn't have anybody with him right now. David, uh, when he did have men under his control, I think did lead them to be men who were conscientious to keep the law. But it's false in this case because there's nobody with him. And he compounds the lying by making up the idea that on this trip they had been extra careful. 
he mentions the young men's vessels, which could just be a metaphor for their bodies. The Apostle Paul speaks about keeping your, your vessel in sanctification. By that, he means that you don't use your body for uh, sexual sin. Uh, or maybe he's talking about the equipment, that, hey, not only our bodies, but even our stuff is ritually pure. We have been careful. You think on this special mission we wouldn't be careful? You think when we're coming to the tabernacle we wouldn't be careful? David's point is on this mission with its tabernacle stop. Of course we have been most careful. I don't doubt that if this was all true that David would be that way, but it's a half-truth. And yet there's a gracious supply given in verse 6. So the priest gave him consecrated bread. For there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord, in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. Maybe Ahimelech had some doubts about David's story, but he takes him at his word. The author here elaborates for us on the significance of what's happening. we learn from this verse that the Sabbath laws were being kept. It's the, the first preference in the Samuel about anybody keeping Sabbath because the law dictated that on every Sabbath day these new large loaves were to be break. This consecrated bread, this holy bread is called the bread of the presence. That is, is bread placed before the presence of God in the tabernacle. The idea wasn't that God was hungry and he needed food, but it was a visual reminder that the nation was in, in, in communion with God and that God was supplying their needs. There were 12 loaves just as there were 12 tribes. It's, it's a, little bit like, a little bit like what we're going to do later today when we observe the Lord's table. Visual, touchable, tasteable reminder that we have communion with God because of what Jesus has done for us. Now, in Old Testament times, every Sabbath, 12 new large loaves were baked and replaced. And if you look at the recipe for it in Leviticus, these things are huge. Each loaf was supposed to be made of an ephah, a flour. You say, oh my, what's an ephah? (laughs) An ephah is about three pounds. One loaf uses three pounds of flour. That's huge. I shared last Sunday night that um, later Jewish tradition said that each loaf was 10 handbreadths long. That's at least 40 inches. And the width is 20 inches. And there's 12 of those. These are enormous. So if, if this is the bread he was thinking about when he came, getting five of those, that's gonna, you can eat off of that for quite a while. We don't know how much of the bread he has given. Maybe it's the five loaves that he asked for. But be that it is made, David is being shown grace here. He is, he is going to eat something he normally could never eat. He was not a priest. But there's been an exception made, a gracious exception. And even though he's lying to try to make his way easier, God is showing him favor anyway. Isn't it, isn't it encouraging to know that God, he doesn't approve of our sin, he doesn't endorse our sin, but he still shows grace despite our sin. Ralph Davis said that when everything is scraped down to the bone, I get my daily bread not because I'm godly, but because God is gracious.
the Lord was supplying David's needs in an amazing way. You know, I, I'll mention one other thing. At the beginning of Saul's reign, before he began to reign, Samuel had told him, uh, now, you're going to see some things that are confirmed the word I've told to you, and one of them is you're going to go up to the city of Bethel, you're going to see some men going up there to make a sacrifice, and they're going to give you three loaves of bread. There was a holy place, and he was given bread that was to be dedicated for worship. And here's David at another holy place, getting even more bread. The Lord is at work, undeserving as he is. Well, come with me now to verse 7. There's a little aside that is made in this story. It almost feels like an interruption. David's peril with the unexpected agent. Now, one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. This is preparing us for the terrible story that will begin and early in chapter 22. It casts an ominous cloud over this mixed story. Notice how the author even withholds this evil man's name till the end of the verse to build up a little bit of suspense. John Woodhouse said, Doeg, remember that name. We will meet Doeg again, though we will not be pleased to see him. He is a royal servant in waiting he is at the tabernacle in Nob for some reason. It just says he is detained before the Lord. It's a rare phrase. In fact, it's the only time this phrase is ever used in the Bible. We can only guess what this is about. Was he there to do some sort of worship act, but he was ritually impure, so he had to wait until that impurity had passed? Maybe. He was an Edomite, but Edomites of his generation would be allowed to the tabernacle if they had converted. I, I'm not so sure about that's why he's there, because when you see what he does in chapter 22, he doesn't give a rip about the things of God. Maybe as the chief of the shepherds, he was delivering sheep, a consignment of sheep to the tabernacle, but it's Sabbath, and you can't finish that business, so he's got to wait, probably disgruntled about it. Maybe, maybe he's waiting for an answer from the priests about some word of God to the king. And they've told him, well, you'll have to wait. I don't have anything now. We don't know. Whatever he's waiting around for, the end result is no good because he is also an evil enemy in the making. Again, this verse is just preparing us for the tragic things which will take place in chapter 22. David, we're told in chapter 22, verse 22, he says after Doeg had slaughtered all these priests that he knew something was wrong when he saw him there that day. The Edomites had a long history of hostility against the Israelites, and yet here's one of them who's in the king's employment, supposedly a good guy, but he's serving a God-forsaken king. He is, has this title, chief of Saul's shepherds, and this is likely a government position and not just like head of the agriculture department. It might have included that, but the word shepherd is used in ancient uh, cultures for administrators of different kinds. He is the chief of them. He is literally the mighty one of the shepherds. This is a strong man. He is what some would call a warlord, a powerful man. And David's lies will be no match for the evil that he begins to hatch. Well, now we come to the last couple verses in today's story where we see David's desire for the un, 
needed sword. David asks another round of questions beginning in verse 8. He's fishing for information on weapons. David said to Ahimelech, Now, is there not a spear or a sword on hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's matter was urgent. Uh, This is a weird place to come for weapons, isn't it? This is is not the armory, is it, Nob? And it's also kind of ironic. The last time the stories tell us that David talked about spear and sword was in the stories about Goliath, where David tells Goliath that you come at me with sword and spear. I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Now, David seems to think that that sword might be a pretty good thing to have. David's story doesn't make much sense here. I mean, I was in such a hurry to go on this top secret mission that I didn't grab my sword. Now, what really happened was Saul tried to kill him. He had to run for his life, and he didn't have time to take his sword. But he's trying to paper it over. This is pretty, his story is pretty far-fetched for a top-ranked military commander, isn't it? I think he knew what weapon was being stored there at Nob. And I think what's happening is David is trusting a trophy from the past. In verse 9, And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Allah, behold, it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you would take it for yourself, take it. But there is no other except here. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. Ahimelech tells him they've been keeping Goliath's sword there in the sanctuary, probably as a war trophy. Just like the Philistines had kept the Ark of the Covenant in their sanctuary after they captured it, It seems as if David had probably donated the sword to go into the sanctuary. Now, it's not on display there. It's not like uh, an idol that people are worshiping. In fact, it's wrapped up and tucked away behind an ephod, we're told. Uh, An ephod is a a very costly priestly garment. This would have been, had gold threads within it. The priests would wear this on certain occasions, and it looks like at other times it's hung up. It becomes a bit of artwork. Uh, within the the tabernacle itself. Um, Ahimelech tells him the sword is back behind that. You can go get it. Uh, This is apparently in one of the tent rooms to the side of the Holy of Holies, not in the holy place itself. And Ahimelech reminds David of the story about how this weapon came into their hands. The last time David talked about Goliath's sword, it was with such disdain. That sword didn't help Goliath one bit. Yet strangely, oddly, David seems to think it's going to help him now. And you know where he goes after this, the next story, which we look at next week? He goes to Gath, which is not an Israelite town, it's a Philistine town. Gath is the hometown of who? Goliath! What? Huh? That sounds crazy. And by the time he gets there, he realizes he's got to act crazy to get out of the mess he's gotten himself in. When he gets to Gath, he doesn't use the sword. In fact, we never read about him using this sword again. It was a failed attempt to secure what he thought he had to have. 
Oh, friends, how many times are there things in life which we, ha- we convince ourselves that we must have that thing, that station in life, that relationship, that job. I must have that one. If I don't have that one, I'm undone. And, and, and we're willing to do almost anything to get it and then find out it's not what it was all cracked up to be. It doesn't turn out to be what we thought it would be. We can turn any sort of thing into an idol that we think will save us. And we have to keep a tender conscience before the Lord that we, we keep our trust in Him. Now, it's not wrong for David to have a sword. There will be battles to fight, and that'll be useful, but there was some kind of dark magnetism he had to this one that's brought him to a place of lying and deceiving so he can secure himself. He is searching for sanctuary. He has come to the sanctuary, and yet he's not really come to the Lord of the sanctuary. In his better moments, David pins things like, the Lord is my refuge. In his better moments, he knows it's the one, he is the one he needs to trust, and not to do as Solomon, his son, would pin later, to walk in his own understanding. David's failures at Nob show us how God's faithfulness to his chosen ones runs deeper than even our lowest points of faith. When we come back to this chapter next week, we'll see him go to that foreign place where he makes a fool of himself, where God is gracious yet still again. But I'll close with uh, leaving you a quote from Robert Chisholm in his commentary. He said, when, when David faced Goliath, he remembered how God had delivered him in the past, and he courageously challenged the Philistine, announcing that God does not deliver by sword or spear. Yet in this story, overcome by panic and fear, he asks for spear or sword. He jumps at the opportunity to take Goliath's sword, declaring it to be an incomparable weapon and then goes to Gath to seek security from his enemies. It's as if David is becoming Goliath. Armed with his sword and going to his hometown, David is obviously walking by sight, not by faith. He's trusting in his own wits.